0: Well, good, morning. good morning. I can't do that accent as good as Cobb, but I can give you the Canadian edition. So good morning. Good morning. Real privileged to be able to close out this series and to share some thoughts from this fascinating passage that Cobb has just read to us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living. It's powerful we desire this morning that you would do what only you can do and take that living word and make it real in our hearts. Encourage us, challenge us, warm us, convict us, change us, we pray. All for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't like heights. That might sound surprising coming from such a tall person as myself that I would have this aversion to heights, but I don't like heights. I didn't realize that I was so fearful of heights until one Saturday morning on the farm when we were having a workbee consisting of family and friends and friends of friends. It was kind of a community project and the task was to replace the roof on our barn, covering it all with new steel and all in one day. Like most traditional barns, barns are tall. When you get to the peak of the roof, that's where you get to enjoy the view, and ours was really no different, surrounded by wonderful fields and uh, rolling hills, and off in the distance, a wonderful maple hardwood forest. You can enjoy a spectacular view, and on that Saturday morning, I keenly headed up the ladder ready to make my ascent and ready to pull my weights on this massive project. However, the further up the ladder I went, the slower my progress became. And as I got near the top of the ladder and to the edge of the roof, I very carefully, slowly, fearfully made my way to the edge of the roof, took a couple of steps, and then, yes, I did something that I should not have done, I looked down and realized I was way too far up. And while under normal circumstances, the view from the top would be quite impressive for me that morning, enjoying the view was the furthest thing from my mind and from my experience. It's hard to let your eyes be captured by the view from the heights When your heart is captured by the sense of fear and insecurity of the moment. I don't like heights. Well, I don't typically like heights, but I like the heights that we get to climb in our passage this morning. And I'm going to get you to climb the ladder with me, as it were, and to make your ascent onto that roof of the barn and to make your ascent ultimately to the peak. And get to enjoy an amazing view that's made possible because of the comforting truth that the passage confronts us with. So I invite you here in our passage, Romans 8 and 31, this last paragraph of this journey that we are taking through Romans 6 through 8. And as we break in here at verse 31, I like what Paul Paul does. He asks a very profound, compelling, urgent question. It's a question, that I think, that needs to be asked of every sermon that we preach, every time we get to teach God's truth. He says, what shall we say to these things? And as eloquently as you can paraphrase that question, essentially he's saying, so what? <laughs> so what? And Paul reminds us here that as followers of Jesus, we need to wrestle with the so what of God's grand truth. And Paul has given some wonderful, wonderful teaching in these passages leading up to this, some great doctrinal truth, and now he says, so what? He would encourage us that our response shouldn't be a, a great, gigantic yawn to the wonderful truth of God's Word, but we need to wrestle with, what difference does it make in my life? And so, he asks this question, what shall we say to these things? Now, precisely what things does he have in mind? It could be a reference to the things that has just been rehearsed in the previous paragraph, which Dr. Stevenson walked us through last week. It might be a reference to what he has been talking about in this section in Romans 6 through 8. Others would suggest that it's a wrap-up summary statement that takes us all the way back to the beginning of Romans, leading us up to this question. And so whether it is just the immediate preceding verses or whether it is the whole thrust of Romans up until this point, the response that Paul wants us to have is to wrestle with the question, so what? What do we take away from this? What difference does it make? He's going to help us do that. He's going to help us answer the question, so what? And what we're going to see here in these verses is that he gives us a foundational takeaway truth. That's an amazing truth. And out of that foundational truth, there are four implications that emerge out of it. I suggest to get a hold of these truths this morning and people that will help you as you forge your way through this week and leading into next week in your final exams. As faculty and staff, we get a hold of the truth that he's giving to us here. It will comfort us. It will enable us. We find ourselves at this stage of the semester where the plate is heaped on all sides. It's a truth that can sustain us and can drive us forward. That foundational truth is simply this. That as followers of Jesus this morning, we need to know that God is for us. God is for us. He says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What should we say to all these things that Paul has just been talking about, those great doctrinal truths that we celebrate? What conclusion should we come to? What conclusion should we come to that when we as sinners who were guilty and helpless and cut off from God under the sentence of eternal death have been provided a salvation in which not only our sins are forgiven, but rather we also have been credited with the very righteousness of God himself? When the debits of our sin have been removed from the books and in place, we have been credited with the wealth of Christ's righteousness. Uh, What should we conclude from the fact that those of us who have a clear standing before God have received the Holy Spirit who is at work within us to progressively change and transform us so that we become more like Jesus Christ, that God hasn't left us on our own just to grit our teeth and roll up the sleeves and see what we can do. Uh, What should we conclude from the fact that for people like us who have received this salvation, who have the Holy Spirit residing within us, that God has declared that we are going to be glorified, transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. As Dr. Stevenson reminded us last week, that even though our glorification is future, it's as certain as if it's already been accomplished. And Paul says, for the likes of us this morning as followers of Jesus who have experienced all of these things, when we consider these truths, what conclusions should we come to? And Paul says here that the conclusion we need to come to is that God is for us. That God is for us. And so my encouragement to you this morning, if you know Jesus as your Savior, this morning, God is for you. We just need to let the truth of that reality soak into our hearts this morning. Like the dry sponge that soaks up the spilled water, like the parched plant that longs for the fresh water and takes it in through its roots and up through its stem and out through the rest of the plant. We just need to live and to reflect on the reality that God is for you, knowing and having the assurance that God is for you is a wonderful place to be. And Paul says that as followers of Jesus, that is our place. That's the foundational truth that he gives to us. Now out of that fantastic truth flows three profound implications. The first of those is found at the end of verse 31. If God is for us, here's the question, who can be against us? And we know throughout this passage that Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. This is our first one. That if God is for us, who can be against us? Implication is simply this, nobody or no one. Because God is for us, there is no opposition. When God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. Because when God is for you, there is no ultimate opposition. We don't need to worry about our opposition because there is no opposition that counts. And What that means for you and me is that there is nothing that can prevent and hinder God from accomplishing and fulfilling everything that God has intended to do for us. Notice what he says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When it comes to God being for us, and if we need evidence, if we need proof that God is for us, then Paul says just look to the cross. Look to the cross. Some of you might be finding yourself in circumstances and dealing with certain realities this morning, That seemingly make it feel that God is not for you. Paul says, We need evidence of that. Just look to the cross. Proof that God is for us is found in the cross. It's found in the empty cross. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? He's here arguing from the lesser to the greater. If God has met the greatest need, then God can meet all the lesser needs. What are these other things that he's talking about? Of course, there is a general principle that since God has met our greatest need, he can meet all our lesser needs because he's met our need in Christ and salvation, the greatest need. Then He can meet all of our lesser needs, whether they be spiritual or material or temporal. The focus of the passage here is is in these blessings that have just been enumerated in the previous paragraph, climaxing with this promise of future glorification. Will it really happen, and how can we know that it will happen? Is that really our future? The grounding or basis of all these good things happening to us is not in some future potential act, but Paul says it is grounded in an act that has already been transpired in the cross. Consider what of the text we're saying, God wants to bless you and all these things could be yours. You you, you can be called, you can be justified, and you can be conformed to the image of Christ, and, 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 and you can even be glorified, providing, providing that the Father will be ready at the right time to give up His Son to die for you. And if that were the case, if that's the way these blessings were being presented to us, it would be some kind of spiritual tease because how would we ever be certain that in the clutch moment that God would actually be willing to give His Son for us? But that's not what our text says. He's already given us His Son. The hard part is over. The hard part is not for Jesus to transform us into the likeness of Christ. The hard part is not for Jesus to ultimately glorify us. He has the power to transform our lives and these bodies and transform them into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I mean, he merely speaks the word and creation comes into being. The hardest part is over. The fact that God gave his son is the assurance that he will deliver the goods and these other blessings. There is nobody or there is nothing that can prevent that. God is for us. We have no ultimate opposition. But not only that, because God is for us, there is no compelling charge against us. Because God is for you this morning as a follower of Jesus, you are in the clear. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The courtroom motif and theme is, permeates the book of Romans, and it's here in our passage this morning, with lots of judicial terminology that makes its way into the passage. And the scene before us is that of a courtroom scene. And as is typical in any courtroom, any courtroom trial, you have a prosecutor, You have a defendant, you have a counsel to the defendant, and you have a judge. And here in our passage, it is the elect who are on trial, those who are the called, the believer. We have an affinity with the defendant this morning who is on trial because that defendant is you, it's me, it's us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Paul has clearly established that God is for us, and because God is for us, there is no ultimate opposition. But that does not mean there is no opposition, because there is. And while that opposition cannot ultimately be successful, that doesn't mean that it will not be present. We have a scoundrel of an enemy, Satan himself, who figuratively likes to take that bony finger and wave it in the face of God and bring his accusation against the followers of Jesus. You see what they did? Are these the people, Lord, that you died for? they really your people? He loves to accuse and he loves to attempt to condemn. And with God clearly in our corner being for us, with no opposition ultimately able to succeed or divert, the question gets raised. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. James Boyce suggests that in the first question, if God is for us, who can be against us? It reminds us that God is our champion. And the question, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's a reminder that it's God who is our judge. He is the one who justifies. Normally, typically, that would invoke a sense of fear with God being our judge. You see, it's one thing to have Satan as our great accuser who accuses us day and night. It's one thing for ourselves to accuse us and for our sin to accuse us. We know our thoughts and our deepest recesses of our being, our thoughts, our deeds, our motives. We know the secrets. It's one thing for Satan to accuse us. It's one thing for ourselves and our own sin to accuse us. But ultimately, there's only one that we need to be concerned about, what he thinks. And that's the one who is the judge. And that's our God. And Paul here reminds us that fear can be replaced with confidence because no charge can be brought against those whom God has called whom God has chosen. No charge can be brought against us if the God who is the supreme judge has already acquitted them. Within that courtroom scene with the declaration having been made loud and clear that God is for you and that God is for me and for every elect person standing on trial. Now with a holy hush that spreads over that courtroom, The gaze turns to the prosecuting table. And the challenge is made. Who will dare bring a charge against the elect? The implied answer is no one. Oh, the challenge is there. Go ahead. But just remember that the God whom you have to convince is the God who is for us. In the God who has justified us. And He is the one who says we are rightly related to God, that we are in the clear. God has done that and can do that because of the cross work of Jesus. You need to be convinced that God is for you. Paul reminds us look to the cross. Who will bring a meaningful charge and accusation against us? Nobody. Nobody that counts, nobody that matters. You see, because God is force, there is no compelling charge against us. Because God is force, there's no ultimate opposition. Because God is force, there's no compelling charge to be brought against us. And now, thirdly, because God is force, no condemnation awaits us. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Even though Satan accuses us, even though our enemies would accuse us, even though our own sin were to accuse us, there is no condemnation for us this morning because Jesus, our Savior who died, has been raised from the dead. And Jesus has ascended, ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And there, in the presence of God, he functions as our representative, as our advocate. In the words of A.W. Tozer, there is a man in the heavens, and he is the God-man, our advocate, our representative. And whatever the accusation the claim brought against us, our advocate, our representative just points to the cross to be convinced that God is force. Paul says, look to the cross. And back in our hypothetical courtroom scene, we look down at the table of the counsel for the defendant. And it's Jesus himself. He's our advocate. He's the one who is our representative. Because there is no ultimate opposition, since God is force, we take a few steps up the roof. Because God is for us, there is no compelling accusation. We ascend the roof a little further. Because God is for us, there is no condemnation. And still further up the roof we go. And finally, verses 35 through 39, because God is for us, there is no separation. Because we are secure in his love. We have those images in our mind that when it comes to the end of a trial and in the courtroom, as the verdict has been rendered of guilty, the authorities come in and they take the one who is guilty of the crime and they lead them off. And there is that emotional goodbye. There is the separation. Paul says, there'll be none of that here. There is no separation. Verse 35 raises a question that dominates the last five verses, introduces a whole new tone to our passage. It's not couched in legal terminology, it's not couched in judicial language, but rather it is couched in the language of emotion, personal relationship. The question stated very simply is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who is there or what is there that can separate the elect, the called out followers of Jesus? What is there this morning that is a follower of Jesus that can separate you and me from the love of God? And then Paul lists these seven things. Seven things that get listed and there's an increased intensity with each of them. Uh, Things that might lead us to think that God's not for us, that there is this separation. He says, "Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, things that come into our lives that the enemy uses to attempt to throw us off our game, create doubt within us and make us think that God's love has abandoned us. Verse 36 reminds us that, that suffering and difficulty have always been the lot, the experience of those who passionately pursue God. And so the answer to his question, will any of these things separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? Of course not. Uh, not a chance. Because in Jesus Christ, we conquer with him. And not only do we conquer, but we are super conquerors in Jesus Christ that's the verdict for those of us who are the followers of Jesus and then Paul wraps up this paragraph with these two amazing verses that excite us as God's children and it's here that we ascend to the peak of the roof we're at the top enjoying the view as he says for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death nor life can alter God's love for us. Spiritual beings, whether evil or righteous, cannot negate God's love for us. Space and time cannot impact God's love for us. Nothing in all of creation can change God's love for us. Because God is for us, there is no separation. We are secure in his love forever. That's our view from the heights this morning. And from the heights, we delight in the beauty of the view because Our hearts are no longer captured by fear and and insecurity, but our hearts are captured by the security of God's love for us forever. The view for us this morning is wrapped up in the reality that because God is forced, there is no ultimate opposition. There is no compelling accusation. There is no condemnation that awaits us. There is no separation. Ever. What a blessed position we enjoy this morning as followers of Jesus. All made possible because of the work. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one whom God gave up for us. Dr. Jeff Arthurs, underscoring the significance of the work of Christ on our behalf, he relays, and I quote, The mighty Mississippi River is... Regularly dredged to keep the channel open. Enormous shovels scoop sand and place sand on the barges. And then the barges are emptied along the banks of the river. And this creates huge piles of sand. Now, of course, few things are as enticing to children as large piles of sand in which they can play. But few things are also so dangerous. You see, when the sand piles dry, they leave a rigid crust on top, and sometimes caverns are formed below that you cannot see because of the water that has drained out as the sand pile dries. You can walk on the crust, but you can also easily break through, and as you break through, you find yourself falling down into one of those caverns, and as you do so, the sand closes in around you, and that's what happens. Two brothers were playing on a sand pile, and when it gave way, they fell into the cavern. The sand rushed in. When the brothers didn't return home for dinner, the family and neighbors organized a search party. They found the younger brother. Only his head and shoulders were sticking out of the sand. He was unconscious because of how the sand and the pressure of the constricting sand. And so they quickly dug down to his waist so that he could breathe and revive. And they shouted to him, where is your brother? And The boy replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. The older brother gave his life so that the younger brother could live. It was the only way. And this morning, as followers of Jesus, we stand, as it were, on the shoulders of Jesus because it was the only way. When we looked to the cross this morning and we were reminded that God is for us. When we looked to the cross and we reminded that for Jesus, there was opposition. God gave him over to his enemies and those enemies crucified him. That for Jesus, there was accusation. Because we as sinners were characterized by the sin and the shame and the guilt. And for Jesus, there was condemnation. Because on Jesus, he took our judgment. For Jesus, there was separation. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This morning, we look to the cross. And we are reminded that because God is for us, because of what Christ has done, there is no ultimate opposition. There is no compelling accusation. There is no condemnation that awaits us. There is no separation. Because God is for us, we are secure in His love forever.